0: Switch tack and <clears throat> switch tack, and look towards the uh, the youth side academy. Uh, it's, it's something like you said you are, are passionate about. How do you envisage, or what would you like to see the happen with the Hibbs Academy? You talk about structures. What, what what kind of stuff are you looking for in an academy?
1: It's, it's a good question, uh, Joe. And I think I'm probably getting to the point of being quite philosophical about this now. So I don't necessarily think that you can say one um, structure, if you like, is the best way to develop players. Because, um, and, and this is something I learned, I've done a few courses with, with the FA in England. And, and one of the things that they ask you to do at all, at all points in time is evidence. What you. So they, they, they very rarely, to summarise it, they very rarely challenge your knowledge on things. But what they do is challenge your thought processes on things. And they ask you to evidence, you know, your, your opinions quite a lot. So they're not they're no quite comfortable saying, well, you know, so-and-so came through this programme, therefore we should try and do something similar because it must be the best way to do it. They want you to really dig in and evidence it. And when you actually start to do that in youth development, it takes you down so many rabbit holes um, and and so many things have become really, really fascinating. And I find myself getting quite geeky about some of these things, <laughs> far from an academic, but I'm, I'm reading a lot more than, than I've ever done in my life and, and really trying to kind of uh, challenge a lot of things that's out there so so I guess you know, to answer your question in Scotland we have a, a structure that says professional clubs um, at certain levels of the game can um, register players from the age of 9 now um, 9 or 10 um, and what the evidence out there tells you is that that, that kind of early identification is marred with so many um, challenges so I think you and I have spoken about it before so the relative age effect being one of the really obvious ones and um, so and again, it will still happen. Most of the kids that we might recruit for that under 11 academy team will be born early in the year. Um, again, and I need to keep making this clear um, because I think it's really important. And that doesn't mean that they're the biggest. Um, so I, I genuinely think academy football, if you want to use that term, has moved away from from trying to recruit big kids because they're physical and they can they can um, you know kick the ball really far. We've moved on miles from that, but ultimately, what, what we will do, um, and what any club does, who selects kids, uh, uh, you know, before they before they reach puberty, mainly they they recruit kids at a balling early in the year. So that's an issue, um, you know, that, that we actually need to think about. The numbers of kids that then would, would go through a full programme of under under tens, under elevens, and all the way through into a first team, and and ultimately, um, you know, stay within that club is very small. And, and I don't think we can we can um, get away from that. That is what the numbers and that is what the evidence suggests. So I guess what, where I'm trying to take it is is probably a few things. One is to change the language and change the conversation, because probably the word elite and this is something I've probably got you know within this kind of um, uh, this period of downtime. I think dug into it a lot a lot more. So I spoke to a guy, um, uh, Mark Atkinson from uh, uh, Aik Stockholm. So, so it's law in Sweden that they need to youth sport in Sweden needs to abide by the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. I'm not going to, to go into all of it because it's it's obviously a lot of a lot of kind of um, legal terminology in there. But ultimately, there's certain things in there that the, that the children have got a right to be heard. Children have got a right to play. Children have got a right not to be um, selected into things. So Aik Stockholm, I think, have probably taken it to the furthest level within Swedish football. And they they don't recruit until the age of 13. But what they do is provide loads of football opportunities for kids of all, age, all ages, all levels, and all abilities. Um, you know, and then at thirteen, they give the kid the choice: do you want to train four times a week and then travel to Gothenburg and travel to the other parts of Sweden to play academies, or do you want to stay where you are, doing what you're doing, training twice a week and playing, uh, you know, within a more localised area? So a lot of that is around the, the rights of the child. Now, and I must admit, Joe, I'm still trying to get my head around um, how that might how that type of thinking might apply for us as a club in Scottish landscaping in Edinburgh. Um, But the one thing I'm really, really keen to do is to try and instigate a debate around it because one of the things I think that we we take as a little bit of a fact in Scotland is that grassroots football, if you want to use that terminology, um, is something very specific. And that thing would be that it's really fun. You play with your pals. It's really carefree. you get loads of free play aspect of it. and, And that's what grassroots football is. And then we, we almost kind of quite happily speak about this academy environment being very rigid. You know, it's coach-led, there's loads of pressure, you know, and, and it's not very much fun. And, and I must admit, that's the bit that I really want to challenge the most because I can sit here, you know, unashamedly with both hats on. I am a grassroots coach with my kids, my son's football team, um, and, I, and I help out there uh, twice a week, and I'm involved in a lot of the, the conversations there. But I'm also obviously part of a professional club that runs a youth academy. And I can I can see... Um, that what we need to speak about, in my opinion, is what youth sport or youth football looks like across the board, not what grassroots is, in somebody's opinion, and what an academy is, in somebody's opinion, because a lot of these things just don't stand up, you know. So, in theory, what I'm trying to say is, although um, we're involved in Club Academy Scotland, we're an elite-level academy that says that we need to do certain things, we need to have staff at a certain level, we need to have certain facilities and, and work with kids over a certain amount of time, I'm probably starting to challenge whether that um, that structure is actually the most important for our football club, one, but actually to try and help us um, engage with a, a bigger number of kids and actually have um, more kids coming um, through a pathway and more kids engaged in a pathway. So I'm challenging that. But what I want to challenge a little bit more is this concept that, um, you know, because a, cl- a professional club runs a youth programme, it is there for structured, it's there for early specialisation, it's there for, um, you know, um, something that's going to end up being a disaster for the kid because they're not going to end up playing in the first team and become a millionaire. Some of that language for me is just totally wrong. Totally wrong. Um, and, and I really, I'm, I'm I, this is the bit where I do get a real beam in my I'm really, really passionate about it. We need to speak about it. We need to get a lot of these things out there because... There is some really good practices within the academy structure, if you like. Um, I think I've shared a story before where there was there was two kids coming into our academy last summer. And I'm not going to go into all the nuts and books, but unfortunately, um, the boys club, the youth club that we were with, didn't allow them to come in and train with us beforehand. And I think that's really important because any young person and their family gets to experience our environment lock stock and barrel, we can't sell them anything, you know, we can't do a big sales pitch and say company hibs, it's this. if they come and experience it, then they take it, they take it um, you know, for, for what they see themselves and they can make their own judgments. So this this young these young people in particular weren't allowed that, that opportunity. But it was interesting. So we brought them in, we gave them two or three years at the facility to go and speak to a lot of people, I had a brief chat with them before and they said, look, what is it you're expecting to see in this in this building? What do you expect to see tonight? And by the way, every door in this in this uh, facility is open for you. You go, go and speak to whoever you want, introduce yourself to any of the staff members, ask anything you want and pop your head into any door that you want. There'll be somebody in there to kind of, you know, help show you around, but it's, it's, it's up to you to go and make it this time what, what you want Tell you to make a decision whether you want to come or not. And they went into the barn to watch, um, you know Steve Cullen, who does a lot of really good stuff in, in the kind of uh, athletic development space with with the kids. So he was testing. It was one of the last nights before they broke up for the summer, and and the parents came back in and, and I said, oh, what what is your perception? What have you seen? And he said, oh, I said, I'm really surprised by what I saw in the barn. I'm thinking the kids were just testing. You know what what possibly was going on in that barn that he was surprised about? He said, oh, I saw a lot of really smiling faces in there. You know, and that genuinely took me aback to think, why would a parent Come into an environment like um, the Hibernian Academy and expect to see anything different? Why would you not expect to see kids smiling? Because that is what we are. And and when we signed or registered the the youngest age group this year, um, you know we, we brought all the parents in together, and that is that is what I said to them. Please think upon us as a kids' football team, because that's what we are. Do not think about your child as a potential future professional footballer. And please, please do not think about him as a professional footballer right now because he isn't. And please don't start to shout at him when he makes mistakes because it's really important that they do. It's really important they have fun. It's really important that they make pals with all the guys in the group and they have a, a real friendship group and they develop socially. And it's really important that we all, as adults, allow these kids to play and have fun but also to make mistakes. These are the things that are important. And that's something I think, you know, there's, there's so many things in there, as I say, we can go down a load of rabbit holes here, Joel. But some of these things I think are really, really important um, things that we need to discuss across youth football. Where is the aspect of free play? Because that's becoming uh, evidence that that is pretty important. You know, there's loads of chat about kind of multi-sports um, elements and things. And, and these are one or two other stories I could probably tell about, you know, again, um, people, adults who have said things to parents like, you shouldn't go to Hibs because it's early specialisation. Hang on a minute, you know, that, that, that thing for me is just madness. So what would the kid be doing for an hour and a half on a Friday night if he wasn't at HTC having a training session with, with some other kids of his age and, and, and a couple of different coaches? What would they be doing, you know? And and for me, this is a bit that, that I really want to challenge Is I don't think the way we are structured and speak about things, that unless, if they weren't with us on a Friday night, they would go to a local gymnastics club. I don't think that would be the case. Now, if it was, I, I would be very open to that conversation and say, well, actually, maybe eight, nine or ten, actually going to a local gymnastics club might be more important than coming to the Berlin Training Centre. And that's where I'm trying to get in my mind as to what, what type of environment um, can we create at the Berlin Training Centre to help engage more young people in football, to help create pathways for them to go and develop and to get so far away from this idea of you are signed, uh, therefore, on a pathway and released, therefore, your world ends and, and you need to go and exit that programme and, and go somewhere else in the world and everybody's a disaster. You know, that, that type of conversation for me is just so... Wrong on every level, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know how much time you've got on that, Joe but if you're going for a little longer on the on the youth side, so There's, it's it's for me.
0: Yeah, there was there was a few, there was a few interesting things I was uh, looking to touch on in there. I think it's easy for fans for us to say a player has not made it or failed, and then you you talk about certain um, boys clubs are reluctant to allow players to come in uh, to Hibs, even though it's a professional environment. But when you look at it from a a kid's point of view or a player who has progressed but maybe not made the grade at first team level and dropped out of football or dropped uh, down the leagues, is that behind them they've got a lot of life experiences and you look at uh, at Hibs or or, uh, professional clubs, they'll learn about nutrition they learn about looking after themselves. Like I said, they are uh, going to be in a professional environment, but they're going to be friends. So there's, there's a lot of experiences, and they gain the, uh, gain from coming through there. They're okay, they maybe didn't uh, hit first team level. Their boys club are reluctant, but there's, there's so many benefits from coming through and just being in that professional environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think the the first thing I would say on that, Joel, is that we we as a club have no right to to demand that a kid does anything, you know, even comes in into the building, and 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 I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, some boys clubs don't want it to to happen and, and and go down that route because what what we've tried to introduce is is a system where we would send a letter to the youth club and say we would request that such and such a player comes into a facility for, you know, at this day, at this time, for this like, period of the session for for X number of weeks. And by the way, you are more than welcome to come along too because we would like to actually have a conversation. And there's a couple of stories I, I, I don't want to mention any names, but, you know, there was a couple of young children that, that we tried to bring into the environment from a little bit further afield Um, And we wrote to the club, you know, very sort of standard letter, but very kind of diluted a lot of the language. It's about, you know, it's a training period. It's not a trial. We want to see how they, they, you know, do they want to actually... um do they enjoy being here? Can we work together? And, and actually, probably between the, the, the family, the, the child themselves, you know, the youth club and us come to some sort of agreement as to what might be at some point in the future the right time for that for that kid potentially to transition into a different environment. Right now, that's a that can be for me a very easy and straightforward conversation, or it can be a very difficult one. And I've had experiences of both. But with these two children in particular, it meant them traveling a bit of a distance. So before we get anywhere near thinking about whether they're, they're, they're good enough, right, if you want to use that expression, or whether whether it's the right thing to come into the environment. Can they actually get into your building for half past five on a Friday night? Now, that's a really fundamental question, because if the answer's no, the conversation doesn't go any further. You know, but the amount of stuff that we got back from the boys, it was a club policy that we don't allow them to go to 13. So, you know, hang on a minute. How can you have a policy that dictates a child is not allowed to go to one specific environment until the age of 13? And the thing that really annoys me is that same child could play football every day of the week, Corva, box soccer, private academy, youth club, school, whatever it might be, and nobody thinks that there's anything wrong in that, you know. Now, if we go down another rabbit hole, we can start talking about it. then it's early specialisation, then it's it's not multi sport, blah blah blah. Right, but we can we can maybe leave that one for a follow up at some point, Joe. But but that that for me is is interesting that you know the one. The one environment that causes people real issues is coming to the Hibernian Training Centre for an hour and a half on a Friday night to train. That causes people real big issues. Um, and for some for some aspects, I must admit, i kinda, I kind of getting myself to a point where I understand it because probably the perception that's out there is the only way that you can achieve what might be described as success by doing that, coming to the Hibernian Training Centre, is if you get signed by Hibs, stay there all the way through and end up playing in the first team, you know? And, and again, I think there's loads of challenges around about that. Um, interestingly, Mark McNulty was released by the Hibernian Academy at a young age, went to Livingston, played in the first team, and, and has now come back twice to play uh, in the first team here again. So he's, Sean Mackey was another one, released and me actually and paid money to today's Rovers to bring him back. So there has been examples of people who have exited, um, not just our academy, but other other programmes, and then gone on to actually go and, and develop. And, um, there's probably bits around that. There's, there's a woman called Anya McNamara. that does a, a. She's done a huge amount of study into this idea of um, real top performers. So in football, she calls them super champs. These these people who are like playing in English Premier League and have over sixty international caps. And she she's chunked up, you know, number of different people in different brackets. This is me getting really geeky here, Joel, So forgive me a <laughs> minute. But um, but she talks about these these players that are almost so the high performing young players and um, that never quite make it. Is there any similarities generally in, in their journeys? She, so what she's found is that the high-performing young players very rarely had any form of challenge in their pathway. They were always the best, you know. And, and that's something I think we need to really think about here: is that talent isn't linear. Talent and talent development doesn't go in a straight line. Where people just keep improving, 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 improving suddenly get a first team, you know, become John McGinn and go and get sold to the and, and play in the Premier League. That doesn't happen. And even John's story, he's, John's been great speaking to, to our academy kids when he was here and even since he's left. But, you know, he wasn't playing with St Mirren at under 19 level. He was 17, 18 years old. Actually, funnily enough, I did not really know this, but didn't didn't play in the middle of the pitch at that moment in time. Couldn't get a game, you know. Now, that's a big challenge for him to overcome in, in his life. Now, part of that was because he wasn't potentially as physically uh, well-developed as, as he was now and certainly not in, in conjunction with the rest of his peers, but there's so many things in there that the, high, the super champs that Annie McNamara calls them, these really high performers, had normally had slow progressions, loads of challenges to overcome, loads of things that, that were difficult for them might have been injuries, it might have been a deselection, and might have been going through a period of not playing, but they actually were able to develop um, mechanisms to cope with that Now this is where I need to be really, really careful and I don't want to be misconstrued here, Joel, because I'm not saying that as an academy we have the right to play God with people Mm -hmm. and make things really difficult for them and put them under real uh, strains. That's not Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. But for example, um, this is one fundamental thing that I would love to to, to actually discuss in Scottish football. So if I go back to the foundation phase for a little bit, is a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old who can dribble around people kick the ball with both feet, and who is technically good, is that the skill set that you need to bring into a development pathway or whatever else, or to identify at that age, to become a high-performing adult player? Now, that's a really, really open-ended question, because in some instances, we could say, well, Billy Gilmour was involved with Rangers at seven and a half, and he was that kid. You know? Callum McGregor at Celtic, Kieran Tierney at Celtic, James Forrest at Celtic, John McGinn at St Mirren. They were probably that kid who, who had that technical ability to go and do something. But I suppose what I'm trying to say in here is that in order to develop um, young people, and and I think you make a really good point, and and whatever that might be in life, you know, they need to be able to overcome challenges. And that to me, and all the learnings and studying that I've done, seems to be one of the critical factors. How young people can overcome adversity, how they can overcome challenge, and how quickly and how able they are to adapt to whatever they face. So, that absolutely, for me, says that we cannot, um, in sport, allow um, young children to have an easy ride all the time because it's not doing them any favours, you know. Now, that conversation can go on mm-hmm. forever because, as I say, we're not playing God here and, and we can't get back to this thing and say, well, academies are doing this because they want to toughen you up. That's not what we're saying at all and and that, that would be wrong to, to, to suggest that. But, for example, we've got some technically gifted players um, going through the, the younger age groups. Mm-hmm. And there's been some some conversations to say, do we put them up an age level where we know they're going to really struggle physically? But they're technically very good at their own age. They can compete, they can score goals, they can they can dribble by people, they can do all these things. But actually you need a really, really big challenge to see how they how they, they, they operate when that um ability to dribble around people and do haven't might not be quite as easy. Let's put them up a year, see how they got on. You know, mm-hmm. for other kids it's a little bit the opposite. You're maybe saying go and play down a year, you know, because actually physically you cannot compete. But what you need to understand is that technically and everything else you, you can still, you've still got a lot of good skills and abilities to go and do it. So there's so much involved in this conversation, Joe. You're, you're, you're probably sorry you asked me the question in the first place. But, um, but when you start digging into these things, you know, and even within that that bit of study that Onya McNamara did, you know, she's talking about the parents' input. So high-performing players, you um, most of the time, the, the Super Champs schools had parents who were interested but disinterested. So interested enough to take them to sessions and make sure that their kit's clean and make sure that they're there on time and make sure that they're that they're good people, but not pushy. And this is the one thing I've spoken to Judy Murray now a handful of times in, in the last couple of months and she did a Q&A for our academy <laughs> players quite recently. She absolutely hates being called a pushy parent. And I've asked about five or six people who know her and have and worked with her and knew her back in those days. And by all accounts, she wasn't. You know, she was the interested but disinterested parent. You know, took them along to the cricket club, uh, the tennis club, sorry, let them play other sports. Didn't push them into anything they didn't want to do. Even when they went abroad to train and, and Jamie, you know, came back from that, you know, didn't push him into anything else. Let him give up the game for two years because he just wanted to go and play golf and, and play with his pals. And... She's parented, if you like, if you want to use that expression, two world-class athletes, both multiple Grand Slam champions and number one tennis players in the world. You know, all these things I find are really interesting, and these are the type of conversations I think we need to expand on in, in Scotland so much more because they're really important. And I, and I genuinely think we're missing we're missing the important stuff and getting far too bogged down on stuff that isn't important. That's probably how I would summarise it.
0: I think I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about a young player who was by far, head and shoulders, the best player on the team, but he had maybe an attitude issue if things didn't go his way, I think it was with a Premier League team, and the, I think there was a um, psychologist or so whatever working with them, and he suggested taking the team and moving the player. So, so basically, coaching the team and having the coach ref the game, and every chance the coach would give a fill against that goes against that player, and it basically just became became a test and a conversation between the player and the the, the coaches as well to to try and guide him.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm sure that was the um, it was English FA that spoke about that, I'm sure. So they, they would have psychologists. And again, this is moving into another another sphere of youth development, I think, Joe, which I find pretty fascinating. So, you know, clubs, I think, now more and more are employing psychologists. Um, and that, I, I would probably say psychology now is maybe where sports science was about 20 years ago. You know, so most clubs had sort of like, you know, and I don't mean a downcry, but this sports science probably looked like, speed ladders and agility gates and that type of thing. And that, that was seen as being a sports science programme. And it's moved on massively, uh, you know, at all levels since then. And I think psychology is probably starting out uh, along a similar vein. So normally, um, and, and it's funny, I've heard somebody, uh, it was a, a psychologist at a Premier League club in England, that says that the day that somebody stops saying so-and-so is going to see the psychologist, I know am making a difference. Because you don't ever say you're going to go and see the strength and conditioning coach or see... Uh, the coach, you know, he said, but you, but, you know, for some reason, you need an appointment to sit on a chair and, and the psychologist puts on a white coat and, and gives you a kind of psych assessment. You know, that's, that's the, the, the type of thinking of around that, that world at the minute. But so that's where the FA have moved a lot. So they have their, their psychologists actually working with teams and working with coaches. They're on the field. They're on the ground. A lot of it is to do with, with the environment that's created around the sessions, and a lot of it's to do with the, the actual coaches' um, behaviours at the side of the pitch as well. But a lot of it is about how players actually um, overcome the challenges they're going to face in the game. You know, and, and I've learned a lot from psychologists that we've got in, the, in our academy. John Marchant has talked about. Um, he's tried to align some values to what Steve Cunning and the guys in the and the um, science and medicine department do so the things that steve cunning wants to see in athletic development are strength and speed and power and balance and, and, and other things so john's aligned that from a psychological perspective so mm-hmm. resilience self-reflection you know and, and a number of other things in there um and the one thing that's been really interesting to me is these things become behaviors so just an example that you've mentioned there uh, you know the, the young kid when the, when the when the decision goes against him throws his hands up in there now that's a physical action that's the one thing that i've probably learned about it is that um, it's quite, it's very challenging to change a mindset, very challenging to change a thought process. But if you actually start to, to, to deal with the behaviours that that are manifest in there, it becomes easier. And we've done it. at Hibs, our analysts have done, like the Sky camp on on some of the young players. So one or two in particular, you know, if if they, they give away a ball with a poor first touch, they'll shout at a teammate, you know, and say that ah, was your fault, right? The referee gives a decision, the hands go up in there. And it's fascinating when you do that old uh, Skycam stuff where they just clip out that player and actually sit with them and say, have a look and see what you think. I'm mortified. Because one, it looks absolutely ridiculous. But then they can see, you know, what the behaviour actually looks like. And then, they, obviously, John works with them and starts to see how they can how they can use different strategies to overcome those disappointments. So if you're a striker who's run a fraction too early, it's a 50-50 decision and you're given offside, what do you do? Do you stand for ten minutes shouting at the linesman? Well, the, you know the plays building up, or do you actually sprint back into a position to be ready to go and defend the next ball? It's two choices you make. Now that's that psychology, that's a an, an attitude, and you know some of the players have mentioned that. I always thought, you know, John McGinn very, very rarely ever stayed down when he was kicked. The first thing he would try and do is get back up again. Very rarely did the physio come on, and even if he did, he got up pretty quickly afterwards. Now I don't know whether he said any day advise him that that's you know from a psychology perspective a good thing to do but I always remember even just watching from the side of the pitch and sometimes in the away end and with the supporters it was great to see you know if you see your midfield dynamo getting straight back up again you think by the way he fancies it today he's in the game you know it doesn't matter how many times he gets kicked and I don't mind telling you Joel haven happened quite a bit in the derbies he would get straight back up again and, and, and go back at it so you know and, and these type of things I think become become uh, behaviours so the, so the psychology aspect is, is absolutely important and I mean, I'll tell you this one as well. Marvin Bartley, when he he spoke to our kids at the Q&A, and I must admit, the kids have been asking some brilliant questions to the guests. They really have. And they asked Marvin about some of the really challenging times in his career. And he said that, 18 years old, at that point, really focused to try and become a professional player and gets released from an amateur team. Now, he had a choice. and, And somebody asked him towards the end, what did you decide to do? What was your decisions? And he said, well, I had two. I could have either started blaming that manager and saying he doesn't know what he's doing, he's rubbish, he's this, he's that, and blaming everybody else. Or what I could do was go and find a manager that actually believed I could be a player. Because I did. I just needed somebody else to do it. And by the way, there's loads of managers out there. I just had to go and find the one that actually believed the same thing as me. Wow. 18 years old and getting released from that level. He's no blamed the club. He's no blamed. somebody further down in his development or a coach at under 13 that, that... Shouted that on one day or whatever else it might have been, he's actually gone, it's up to me, I'm just going to go and work even harder, go and find somebody that will help me progress and, and the mm-hmm. career that he's had since then and, and the career now that he's forging and, and, and coaching and media and everything else speaks for itself, it's that mindset, you know, and and I do think that that's something that within youth sport, there's there's great opportunities for us to, to build in kids, you know. That's difficult, and it needs to be done in the right way. And as I say, we're, we're no saying here that we need to become God and start, you know, shouting at kids and running them up hills. That's absolutely the opposite of what we're seeing here. But give them some really structured challenges all the way through to see how they deal with it, and support them within it. That's important, you know. Support them within it, and, and realise it's a long-term process as well.
0: Interesting aspect I found. I did uh, youth coaching for a year. It was it was very very difficult I found, and also going back to when I played youth football. Um, how how important is giving youngsters ownership of like training sessions or decisions within games? Because I know I, I was quite opinionated when I was a player. A couple of mates they were very opinionated. Where uh, as as a player, and I do remember. I think it was an interview with a Dutch player, and there they kind of grew up basically challenging what the coach has said or challenging, uh, maybe not quite quite uh, confrontational but uh, or second-guessing, but having their input or asking questions where they found in the UK it was a case of the coach said this, we do that. How important is that going forward is for young players at Hibs to, be, to take ownership and to to have their voice?
1: Massively, Joe. And I think, again, I'm going to get slightly geeky here because there's a lot of research along along this field. And it probably takes you into two things. One is is the coaching environment. So coaching, I think, in the modern world is now moving a lot a lot further away from being an instructor to being a facilitator. Um, now, that brings within it its own challenges because if you instruct something all the time, you're in control of everything that happens. You know, and, and I remember you know when you do coach education courses and i know these things are starting to, to kind of be challenged now and start to change but you know it was all about putting on a session that worked it was all about structuring something that moved very very smoothly from one aspect to the other but what we're talking about here is a game that is chaotic so how can how can you teach uh, to uh, you know someday to be involved in a chaotic game by having loads and loads of structure that's, that, that, that's a, a conversation that we could have and, and expand on but similarly for the kids you know, I, I told a story recently so you know I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of free play and it probably goes back to the culture and again I'm going to make you a nice and dead old here but back in the day when, when we played football in the park of our pals you know you just went and played and you learned so much in that environment and, and even from a skill acquisition perspective, you know there was a big kid that you knew you, you were only stronger than, so you couldn't fight him. You had to find a different way to play against that guy. There was another guy who was really quick, and you knew you couldn't outrun him, so you, you had to adapt in that environment. And, and it was just natural; it happened all the time. Now, I think the research I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe says that there's probably it's probably somewhere in the middle. Now, I know I've mentioned before there's a there's a youth club in, in England called Salisbury Rovers. Um, they do so much good work. Um, and, and the woman Debbie who, who runs them is really, really um, evangelical about this idea of free play. So from February this year, she pulled every team out of a league. She's got a saying that's basically, you know, it's basically trying to get away from the kind of, um, you know, the professionalisation of youth sports. So she talks about um, kids and kits and teams and leagues. She's not really, she thinks that's quite an adult construct and quite an adult thought process. So what she does is just have sessions. Now the sessions might be lo- loads of different things, but loads of them are free play sessions. Where, and she, I've seen some of the stuff that she's posted online, but, you know, you see 14-year-old kids playing with 10-year-old kids, just playing. You know, the kids are just actually having fun, and loads of things that they ask the kids to do is to, what is it you want to do? Do you want to join the league, or do you not? You know, it's and I suppose probably within, and even with the club I'm, I'm operating in, you just do it. So as soon as the kids get to, this year it's 2014, you can go and play in the local Scottish FA4 v4 league, like you don't really ask the kids, you just do it. You know, you get them a strip and you organise it and four. Four of your kids against four of your kids and you go and play. The environment is good and I'm not suggesting for a second there's anything fundamentally wrong in that but the question you asked, you asked I think is a really, really good one. Um, how much input do kids have in their development? Because as soon as they go and cross the white line and George Craig tells a great story about Ryan Portis at Ibrox, he's on his own. He's making his starting league debut for Hibernian football club in front of 50,000 people in Glasgow against Rangers in a game which, you know, historically over the last number of years particularly has got a bit of needle in it. You know, how does he handle that? If, if he's not had um, an opportunity to develop a lot of those skills that he needs in that environment on that day, it's going to be really difficult for him because as much as he had experienced players around about him, it's very difficult for them to actually drag him through every moment of every kick of every ball through 90 minutes in a game of that magnitude. So they need to, to learn those skills. This was something else that I'd learned in a, um, you know, going down and in, in seeing the English mm-hmm. FA. Um George and I went, went down to St George's Park for uh, to see a few different people. But what there was uh, Paul Simpson, the under-20 coach, who took us in, so he's shown us the facility. St George's Park is excellent if, if you've never been, but they've got a big education wing, and a lot of it, you know, businesses can hide it for for, um, for different things. But they were having, in the in the room that day was the um, they were having a goalie camp. So every goalie, international goalie, first second, and third was in, and they were hearing from Tom Heaton about how to be the third choice goalie at a major tournament, which I thought in itself was quite an interesting concept. You know, He was giving him a bit of chat about what he needed to do and how he needed to train and what his mindset had to be. But in the back of the room was a subutio table. Right? So, Jordan asked him, oh, i, don't, I don't see my name in years, that's brilliant. I take it that's just for them to have a bit of social time. And Paul Simpson says, no, no, he says, that's how we do our analysis now. I said, what do you mean? He says, come on, I'll show you. So, Paul obviously was a, was a coach that, um, you know, England won the Under 20 World Cup. Paul was a, was a coach. So, he said, so what we did with our analysis was we've got loads of people, and he showed us a room, right, full of uh, people who were analysing loads of different games to prepare from the under 15s all the way through to the national team. They've got a similar way of, of preparing for games. So, mostly, you know, players will get their iPads or they'll get footage sent to them before they come. So he said, we played, I think it was Argentina in the first game. And he said, Argentina in the two-year period up to the start of that World Cup played 40 players. He said, so I'll be honest, he said, we had absolutely no idea what 11 they were going to pick. He said, but, you know, we, we kind of knew um, because we'd analysed them for such a long period of time, the type of things, the type of, so how they would start to play if the goal they had it, what they would look for, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. He says, so I set it up so it was, you know, fullbacks would split edge of the 18-yard box. He says full-backs would be more or less at halfway line. Number six would try and draw penalties. So that was how I set up Argentina on the Subutu board, and I had all the England players off to the side, and I had my 20-player squad round the round the table. He said, so I would say, right, goalies get goalies get the ball, lads. He said, um, who's going to go first? And he said the striker would take the little number nine off the side of the pitch and drop it on the on the pitch and go. That's where I'm going to go. He said, oh, what are you going to go there for? He says, well, he said, I know. He said, most of the, the, the centre-backs that are playing, the left-side centre-backs are right-sided. They don't have a left-sided centre-back. So I want to stand here so the ball goes there and I'm going to press there so that we can we can force him in this area. So he goes, oh, that's, that's interesting. He said, anybody else? So he says, then to be number six goes." Hang on a minute. He says, I'll go next. He said, I don't want him there. Why not? He says, because the left-back's the best player on the team. He says, I don't want the ball going over the left-back. He said, I want him to go and stand there so, so it moves. And then Paul Simpson says, so all right, okay. So the wee number nine picks up and goes to move and Paul says, hang on a minute, what are you doing? What do you mean? He says, well, do you think he's right? Or are you right? He says, and then it just gets a whole debate where basically the whole squad comes up with a game plan. They talk about it. They analyse it themselves. They see it in front of them. They've all got a part to play. And it's not the coach dictating, this is what you must do here, 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 and here. And actually then when it gets to the fiftieth minute and somebody's dropped a runner or somebody's no pressing the right way, they go, hang on a minute. Remember I told you that two years before the game, that was one of the ten things I told you to do, you know? I just thought that was dead interesting. That, that whole concept of players take responsibility for things and the, the FA at that time within that group took it to the nth degree and said, basically, come up with your game plan, you know. The coach facilitated it. The coach probably, if they were going to say something that was absolutely ridiculous, tried to mould them back into something that might have been a bit more workable. But the players themselves did it, you know, and that was 17, 18, 19-year-old players. So, um, again, I, I love that idea of players taking responsibility for things. Um, and, and, again, you know, share this one with you that Eddie May had asked uh, Lee Mako quite recently about players who had those characteristics or players who would be able to take responsibility for things. And we talked about it using the word leadership now, again, and can talk forever about what that might mean and what it might look like and everything else but you know, you know so who's the guys that if the coach was late for a session for a reason would take a warm up would start it would get it going blah 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 and, and Lee made a really interesting point he said actually if I think back over a number of years probably the players that I would have hung my hat on to say would have done it are actually the guys that have transitioned to going into the first team so it was almost a kind of light bulb for everybody going well actually if that is a fundamental skill set that we're seeing over a long period of time of players that make that transition which is absolutely the hardest transition you'll get Becoming from becoming a youth player into becoming a, a first-team player, an adult player. If that is one of the fundamental um, things that we need to develop, then again, that's got big ramifications on what we do all the way through and what type of environment we want to create and we want to work in. So uh, loads of challenges in there, Joel. Loads, as I say, loads of rabbit holes that we're, uh, we're going down here. But I just find all these conversations really fascinating. I really do. And I, I would love to have them on a more national level because... Again, I'm a really, really proud Scotsman. I was there in 1998 you know, when I last qualified for the, for the Men's World Cup and I would love to see us doing it again. Um, and I'm now obviously part of Scottish football. What we can try and change is what we do at Hibs, um, which I think is important, but we're probably going to need some support from a wider basis to maybe implement some of the things that we want, which is why I think I'm trying to use this time as much as possible to speak about it a lot more and try and see whether we can get a, a debate and a conversation going about it.
0: So yeah, yeah. Finally, on that, do you, is that is that the next step to try and try and take it and just kind of kind of challenge ideas at the, the Scottish FA level? Because you look at the obviously the implement, implementation of the Scottish FA performance schools. They 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 they're a big part of what the uh, Scottish FA have tried to do. So what is what is the next what is the next step?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's probably. Um... It's probably a few things for me, John. Again, I'm—I I'm, um, was really keen even to try and get a conversation, um, you know, with people who work with youth clubs, because for me, these these things that we are talking about here are as important there as they are within academies. And that's probably the fundamental bit of what I want to speak about is I want to try and get away from this notion that football's different, it isn't? We're just talking about youth football here. We're talking about youth sport. So that is a question I want—I want us all to think about and challenge ourselves on what is important when we're talking about youth sport. Um, and, and again, I would be amazed if I, if I didn't sit in a room of, of people who run youth clubs and say, at the age of under 13 and below, tell me who your best player is and he's not born in the first quarter of the year. This isn't a, a, a you know, relative age effect, for example, isn't a construct that only exists in academies. It exists everywhere. So what does that mean for a little kid in that team who nobody's really thinking's is particularly um, great at this moment in time who's born in the fourth quarter? Do we actually start to get a generation of coaches looking at that kid differently and want to do different things? Can we actually get to the point where we've got a generation of people asking the questions that you're asking here? So what, what, does, what does a player-led system look like? You know, What does it mean to continually give instruction at the side of the pitch? What does it mean to construct a training session that's very structured to try and, and, and elicit a, you know performance in a game that is very chaotic and unstructured? All these things are as relevant for me working with my son's team at seven years old at, at Canberstone Football Club in here as it is for me as the sporting director at Hibs looking at how we might operate in the academy. For me, for me, it's, it's exactly the same as important because what we're talking about is providing young people really good opportunities in youth sport and allowing them to develop in so many different uh, factors and, and hopefully allowing them to be the best that they can be in football, absolutely, but also in life. You, you mentioned it yourself, too. so many of these things are just big life skills that whether you go on to play in the English Premier League or not, if, if you can learn these type of things through sport, then you, you, you can apply them in any aspect of your life and, and the work that you do without a doubt.
0: Uh, so this this will be my final question. Just because you mentioned it again, it was the relative relative age effect. We spoke yeah. about it back in August for an article, doing a link to that when uh, when the podcast goes up. but. You have, Hibs have held events or trials for players born in the fourth quarter. How have you seen that develop since you unveiled or certainly brought it to the club since 2016? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, Joe, this is an aspect where I, I would probably um, love a wider conversation again about how we can apply these things. So we we have at Hibs absolutely now got um, all the staff understanding what it means so, you know, somebody will say, well, that, that kid's a fourth quarter kid. So we actually start to reference. Now that's that's something that's relevant to know. Um, and, and we can start, we do make decisions about, um, you know, probably keeping players in the system a little bit longer. Um, the other aspect of that, I think I've mentioned Steve Kernan's excellent at looking at kids' growth and maturation. So back to the two kids that we spoke about um, last summer, you know, and it generally wasn't a sales point. It was for us to, to have the information and the knowledge. But they were at an age where the relative age effect probably wasn't um, all that relevant. So as soon as kids hit puberty, um, then that that is, is overtaken by their growth spurt and how quickly they grow and, and how their bodies change and develop. So, again, that is interesting for people to know and understand because we'll have youth coaches at all levels here working with ages of 13 to 16, maybe 17 in some instances, whose kids cannot perform because their bodies are just doing a million different things at that point in time. Now, if you know that and understand that, you can make a different decision than if you don't. Um, you know, so, so, again, we had um, the, the two boys that came in last summer. So Steve Kernan was able to tell them within five minutes within probably two or three um, inches of, of uh, variance in there, what height he thought they were going to be when they were fully adult-grown, right? Now, that's quite interesting. So, again, we're not going down the route of academies just <laughs> big kids, but realistically, if you've got a goalie who's going to be five feet nine, the chances of him being a, a top-level goalkeeper are, are very small. You know, probably the same for a for central mm-hmm. defender. So maybe if we get that information when kids are 13 or 14, maybe we can adapt and have them playing in a different position or, or doing different things like that. Um, so Steve Cunham kind of was able to say to that to that family, look, you're a midfield player, great. I you Think you're going to be between five feet ten and six feet one, you know. And, and again, the only time is if they just walked in a spaceship, you know. But that information is pretty easily, easily um, accessed. You know, it doesn't it doesn't take a long period of time or a huge amount of equipment to do it. But that's where you can start make decisions. And the bit that probably got them was he said to them, look, in January. This coming January, he said, your body's going to grow faster than it's ever grown before. So your performances on the football pitch between January and probably end of March, beginning of April, are going to be pretty poor because your feet are going to be all over the shop. Your, your, your ankles and your joints are going to be sore. But, that, but if you're in an environment, that's okay. We will understand that we'll modify your training, we'll get you to do more of this and more of that and we'll see you through it. But don't be disappointed and upset that it's coming because I can tell that is when your body is going to grow faster than it's ever grown before. So there's two things in there. One is the relative age effect and one is this, this idea of growth and maturation. Both equally as important in how we, we talk about um, young players and, and, and what, we, what we actually see in them. Um, the biggest challenge, I think, in the relative age effect, Joel, is that what, what we will do, and I think I've mentioned this quite a, a few times even when we did the article, is we will um, identify kids who influence games, right? and I'm only going to use that, that that terminology. We spoke about it before. Dribble around people, score loads of goals, pass it with both feet. Maybe look like they have a better understanding of the game. And I'm I'm now getting to the point of being pretty convinced that that, that is not the defining factor in what we need to um, we need to see in young people to actually um, you know see them progress over a period of time. Um, so it's how you actually apply. So we're all aware of the elevage effect now. One of the things I would love with this national conversation is to understand where these kids might be because, you know, we send a scout to the side of the pitch. We don't know who's, who's a fourth quarter kid or otherwise. So do do we as a sport start to work with schools a bit more? Um, you know, and, and I think I, I'll give you this one just briefly. Sorry for going on about this a wee bit. But um, one of our scouts came a wee while ago talked about Scottish diving. And I, I just think this was such a brilliant story that they, they did um, some sort of testing and things in the Edinburgh schools quite a while ago um, I think his kid was probably primary four or five, maybe something like that. So probably not unlike the ages we are talking about, you know, um, identifying, if you want to use that word, uh, footballers. So they did loads of things. It was, it was about um, flexibility. It was about hanging off the monkey bars. So probably a little bit about muscular endurance, but lo- a lot more for me about psychology, you know, who had a little bit of grip to hang on those monkey bars longer than anybody else, etc., etc. So anyway, long story short, the kid gets to the point where he's been invited to the Commonwealth pool on Sunday as part of a Scottish diving talent programme. And I'm saying, that's dead interesting, right? So clearly, this is the point where he's, he's going to be in the pool, he's going to jump off this platform of everything else. They hadn't asked him at that point if he could swim, right? Now, I would suggest if you're going to be part of an international diving programme and throwing yourself off a 25 metre platform into a 3 metre deep pool, an ability to swim would be pretty high up there in the list of priorities <laughs> to get out and right? Then they ask. And I thought, this is amazing that that seems to be such a core fundamental skill for that sport that was so far down the list of priorities that they asked him to turn up at the pool before they even really asked if he could swim, you know. But yet in football, we are still probably um, looking at at these younger kids and these top talents, if you want to call them that, and putting them into this pathway for such a long period of time based on what they can do in the game and how they can influence the game at that moment in time. So that's the next bit of the journey for me is trying to understand um, what else might be important there, what other things are actually really important. So if I take go back to Lee Lee Michael's example of these players who have transitioned into the first team, having that idea of leadership and being able to take responsibility for themselves, and and having that skill set, that seems to be pretty fundamental at the upper end. So you know, there's loads and loads more conversation about what might be important to those younger ages, and uh, yeah, so the relative age effect forms part of that conversation for me, and and that's something that helps, I think we can we can certainly apply more uh, and and a, and a little bit more thought to as well, and how we take that forward.
0: Perfect. Well, Graham, thanks very much for coming on and spending so much time talking about your role and also looking ahead at the future of uh, kind of youth football and how would you like to, how you like to see it? I'm sure the listeners will uh, will love uh, listening to it. So we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks very much.
1: No, it's great, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity. It's nice to see you again. And you take care, and uh, we'll hopefully see you back at Easter Road once it's uh, safe to do so.
0: Yes, watching Premiership football.
1: <laughs> no, say no more. Say no more. <laughs> thanks, Joe. Take care. Care's-